So as you heard in our uh, prelude, Pomp and Circumstance, we are in that season of graduations, you know, kindergarten graduations, elementary school graduations, high school, college, graduate school, and various life transitions as well. So this is our annual service when we kind of reflect on that. And, and what are we about that helps kind of equip people for such graduations and transitions? And in particular, I think sometimes the sixth source of our UU living tradition, you can look on the back of the order of service and see our our six sources, and the sixth one is earth-centered spirituality. And part of the wisdom we draw from that source is called the importance of seventh-generation thinking, thinking about the impact of our actions even unto the seventh generation. Or is this also sometimes framed that people find a, a little easier to wrap their heads around thinking of yourself as the midpoint of seven generations. So kind of thinking back to your great-grandparents and then thinking forward to any potential kind of great-grandchildren that either you have or people that you know and love have. So this annual graduation season is an important and auspicious time to reflect on the ripples that do flow from generation to generation. In particular, one of the most helpful tools for shifting our collective perspectives because each of us keeps getting older, and especially those high school graduates, they're just always 18 for the most part. Not, not, you know, there are exceptions to that, but the, how do we keep current with the, these kids, right? Uh, there's a tool called the Mindset List that's released every August to especially help college professors stop using dated references <laughs> and, you know, and remind them that, you know, that your references may stay the same, but uh, they may be less, increasingly less familiar. So this includes um, cultural touchstones that are really shaping the lives of, of students entering, uh, graduating high school and entering college. I'll share just five with you, but you can Google the Mindset List if you want to see the full one. The first is there's somewhat of a poetry renaissance going on that's kind of interesting that is inspired directly by Amanda Gorman's uh, poem, The Hill We Climb, at the recent presidential inauguration. So seeing young people rediscovering the power of, that they can write poetry, that poetry can be incredibly relevant and energizing is part of what's going on, and that, that's really interesting, and that poetry can kind of be on your own terms. Uh, The second is adapting to a virtual college experience, right? Having aspects of college, even if the rates, when the rates are low, still having aspects be virtual that weren't previously. So incoming students and professors are among the first to kind of adjusting to this new digital learning, which has changed the face of higher education and will continue to change it for years to come. I mean, I just looked, we've got like close to 100 devices logged into the Sunday service, right? It's kind of this, we really have, I mean, I think the pandemic at least five years, maybe 10 years, has advanced video conferencing technology and it's commonplace. So that's really a a thing shaping our society. The third is the emergence of this weird thing called Web3. You know, I don't know if any of you have been kind of following, you know, what is this Web3 thing? Uh, So to briefly think about it, the first beginning of the World Wide Web, which started about 13 years ago in the early 90s, was, was really a I mean, it went for about 13 years, starting in the early 90s, uh, was really a read-only web. It was, it was kind of like just taking print journalism and just putting it on the internet. That was web 1.0. We were mostly consumers, not producers. That was, that was kind of web 1.0. Web 2.0 started in the early 2000s and was called, instead of the read-only web, it was the read-write web. So all of a sudden, the web was a platform. So this is social media. This is blogs. All of a sudden, we're creating the internet as, as consumers. 
And this Web 3.0 is called Read, Write, Own. And this is all that funny business called cryptocurrency and decentralized finance and non-fungible tokens where it can kind of travel with you across the internet and it's what are sometimes called DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. There's probably some really interesting ways to think about how these DAOs, these decentralized autonomous organizations that are emerging out of Web 3.0 are actually kind of like Unitarian Universalist as a, we are kind of a decentralized autonomous organization. But anyway, this whole emergence of Web 3.0 is, is, is kind of hitting these current college students. It's kind of emerging with them. Two more quick ones. They are also witnessing the first um, states here in the U.S. to decriminalize drugs. That's another piece that's kind of influencing them culturally. Incoming students now live in a country where Oregon decriminalized drug use, drug possession, and low-level drug sales, as did Portugal, actually, 20 years ago, if you want to kind of look back at an experiment in that. So these kind of harm reduction policies, right, uh, using a public health approach um, to drug overdose, HIV infections, and, and trying to decrease incarceration for drug-related offensive. This is kind of cultural change happening. The fifth is a reemergence of white supremacy in America. And we need to be really honest about that. And we again saw that this weekend tragically in Buffalo. Incoming students are living in this era where a primary threat to terrorism in America is domestic white supremacists. And we need, again, be honest about that rather than abroad. This is the first incoming college state, uh, college class in U.S. history to have witnessed the Confederate flag displayed in the U.S. Capitol. I mean, that's, again, important to think about and wrestle with. So for children and youth coming of age in this new emerging world, we seek to be a theologically liberal religious community that would nurture them in the best sense of that word, liberal open to new ideas, generous, open-handed, open-minded, open-hearted. We seek to encourage spiritual growth based on our Unitarian Universalist values, such as freedom, reason, pluralism, interdependence, choosing to side with love, and building a diverse, multicultural, beloved community, that big umbrella that Nicole was talking about in the story. So as we enter in the minute of silence to follow, I invite you to reflect a little bit on your journey, either with UUCF, even if it's, this is your first day, or your journey with Unitarian Universalism, which I know for some of you has been going on for decades. How has that shaped you? How have we given you not just information, but formation? How have you been formed by Unitarian Universalism? What does it mean to you to and how have we encouraged spiritual growth? How have we helped you be part of a beloved community? How have we helped you act for peace and justice? So in this season of graduations, I want to invite us to think about, again, a little bit about what is it that we do here and why do we come here? What is it that consistently gets you here, either live and in person or online, you know, tuned in to this instead of to something else? In this moment, since you find yourself right here, either bodily or virtually, how does it feel right now to be here? How does it feel in your heart? How does it feel in your mind, in your body, in your spirit? What are you grateful for about this congregation? What does it connect you to? What does it equip you for?
What is it about UUCF or Unitarian Universalism more broadly that keeps you coming back? And I want us to reflect a little on what it is we do as the UU congregation of Frederick. To borrow a metaphor from the philosopher Ken Wilber, what is our conveyor belt? How are we being formed by one another and this place? How are we forming the children and youth entrusted to our care? One of Wilbur's particular interests is how we move through various stages of development and what causes that growth. As individuals, as groups, there is potential to pass, uh, to progress along many different lines of development. For example, there are stages of kinesthetic development. I know all of you personally, as well as watching children of your life, have watched babies first learn to hold their neck up, right? You kind of watch that instead of they're just like all flopping around. Then they learn to roll over, and then they learn to crawl, and then they learn to walk and run. And some people reach even Olympic levels of kinesthetic development that most of us will never reach. You know, some of you have heard the story before of, I'm a, I'm a decent runner. You know, I've done a sprint triathlon. I've, I've run one marathon. But I've actually failed twice at doing the Olympic distance triathlon because I got about halfway through the four-month training, and I was just like, y'all, this is taking up too much time. <laughs> like, I just, uh, I don't have time for this. I'm not a professional athlete. So, you know, we, we have to choose which, where we want to put our emphasis, right? Where do we want to develop and to what extent? There are stages of cognitive development, right? As we watch babies learn how to differentiate their sense of self from the environment, then learn to talk and read and write, all the way up to world-class levels of cognitive development, like Nobel Prize-winning inventiveness that most of us will never reach. Similarly, we can outline the stages of development morally, or emotionally, or aesthetically, or all these various aspects of the human condition. And this morning, I want to invite us in particular to think about what is spiritual development. After all, the first part of our mission statement here at UCF says, we gather, get, we gather together to encourage spiritual growth. So how do we do that specifically? What does it mean to, to progress in spiritual development? What is our conveyor belt? We're often more familiar, for example, with traditional conveyor belts for cognitive development. We know how to develop cognitively. We go to preschool and then high school and then, you know, if you want to keep going, graduate school, research, la- research laboratories, uh, think tanks. Likewise, many of us are familiar with how do we develop, you know, kinesthetically? Well, you join a sports team or you hire a coach all the way up to specialized professional training camps and teams. If you want to develop aesthetically, you can go to art school, right? If you want to develop emotionally, go to therapy. I have referrals if you need them. Uh, You know, into all these different aspects of ourselves. But often less familiar are what are the ways that places like UUCF help us develop spiritually, individually, and collectively. To say more about that, I want to use the framework of a classic book by uh, James Fowler. It's a a late uh, psychologist and theologian uh, at Emory University. Died in 2015. It's titled Stages of Faith. So if you're interested in what I'm talking about, you can go read more of this for yourself. As with any schema, Fowler's um, categories aren't perfect. In, in particular, his, uh, his, each of his categories is a pretty big mouthful. I think it would have been great if he'd had simpler categories. But I do think you'll find uh, the overall arc he traces to be interesting and, and I think even useful. And as I take us on a quick tour through these stages, I invite you to reflect on which ones are kind of resonating with you. Which ones can you say, ah, 
That's what happened on my journey. That's what helped me get through this stage. Or think about other people really close to you. What helped them kind of develop through these stages or what kind of pulled them back or, and arrested their development? Uh, Fowler highlights six potential stages of faith development that span the course of a human life. At birth, according to Fowler, we're born into a kind of primal or undifferentiated faith. That's stage zero, if you will. And barring any traumatic events, most of us naturally develop around age three into what he calls stage one, intuitive projective faith. Again, right, these are all a little bit of a mouthful, intuitive projective This early childhood faith is characterized by intuition, by imagination, by emotion. So kind of pre-K kindergartners, think of pre-K kindergartners in your life. They tend to have a fairly, shall we say, freewheeling spirituality involving a high level of fantasy. Then, around the time that most children enter first grade, and this is not a mistake, there's a reason that we sort of are developed cognitively at a certain point to be able to enter first grade, that relates to our sort of capacity to develop spiritually. Uh, People tend to develop into stage two, mythic literal, mythic literal. This stage involves a more wooden literal understanding of religious myths and legends. So kind of going from fantasy to understanding like these things really happened like in a very, uh, again, literal way. For instance, a child listening to a traditional religious tale may literally think of God as a supersized human up in the sky. Think about like Michelangelo's Sistine uh, Chapel ceiling, like literally think that like you know, God is this um, Zeus slash Santa Claus figure that is, uh, you know, almost touching hands and looks exactly like a human. The transition to stage three, which uh, Fowler calls synthetic conventional. So it's kind of synthesizing the conventions around you. This is usually triggered by adolescence, becoming a teenager, going through puberty. As a child grows and experiences more of the world, the messiness, the complexity, the diversity of life challenges simplistic, literal childhood understandings of faith. Cognitively, adolescents are also better able than more egocentric children to empathetically sense what life is like from the perspective of other people. And that increased ability to consider how other people see you can lead to conformity. It's what we call peer pressure. Right, that peer pressure is really, really active at this stage. And again, as that name, synthetic conventional, we're synthesizing the conventions around us. And Fowler encapsulated, encapsulates it this way in a phrase I think is really smart. He says, if you're in stage three, synthetic conventional, as I see you seeing me, I construct the me I think you see. I'll say that again. As I see you seeing me, right, I construct the me I think you see. I don't look inside myself and say, who am I really? That's going to come next. Instead, I construct the me that I think you see. And that's a really dangerous and precarious thing because, you know, it turns out that, um, you know, most of us don't even really know what we think, much less really what other people think. And so it's really kind of building your house on uh, shifting sand as, as many adolescents come to see. Uh, and, and another uh, important um, piece of this is that uh, synthetic conventional faith usually begins again in the teenage years, but here's where we begin to have, need to tell some of the difficult truths, that some adults kind of have an arrested development here 
and they stay in synthetic conventional their entire lives, even as, let me hasten to add, they might continue develop, developing kinesthetically, right? You can be a world-class athlete kinesthetically, but be a, you know, kind of a middle-grade uh, religious person, right? Or you can be, uh, you know, really brilliant intellectually, but kinesthetically clumsy, <laughs> you know, for example, or really have not very good appreciation for art, Right? You could be a brilliant scientist who doesn't appreciate art, or both. You can develop on both levels. Uh, another uh, quick confusion people sometimes get here is that there are wise spiritual teachers who are legitimately insightful spiritual practitioners, very, very spiritually developed, very profound spiritual experiences, but they're actually underdeveloped emotionally and morally. That's why you, you get sometimes you get spiritual teachers who sexually misconduct or who embezzle money. And sometimes people say, oh, well, then I guess everything they taught me spiritually must be wrong. No, actually, people really can be authentic spiritual teachers, or sometimes people are just frauds, right? That can happen too. But people really can be authentic. You really can be developed in isolation of the other things. You really can develop spiritually. Or like, these things, are, they're not connected. As much as if I were creating the world, that's how I would want it to be. I would want these things to be connected, but they aren't necessarily. So although some uh, individuals and groups do experience an arrested development at stage three, the movement to stage four, individuative, reflective. So that's, again, when you kind of step back, instead of just being enmeshed in the world and synthesizing the conventions around you, you individuate. You begin to reflect. Wait, does this really make sense? And you begin to really ask that. So uh, individuative reflective um, begins for many people in early adulthood. As we enter our 20s, our 30s, many of us leave home, either literally or metaphorically. And our primary source of authority moves from outside the self, our family and friends, and what we think they think of us, to inside of us. Um, that, that's sort of a part of a growth of maturity, beginning to internally validate ourselves instead of always looking for external validation. We separate from the herd and take individual responsibility, reflecting on who am I really? What am I gifted to do in the world? This shift is vital for growth, but it's difficult to do. And that's why some people keep sort of devolving back into synthetic conventional, back into um, peer pressure. For some people, individuation begins as one begins to leaves college or leaves home in various ways to start an independent life. For others, it's a sort of train wreck experience of, of sorts. So a death, an illness, an accident, a loss, a divorce, a change like coming out of the closet. That's the sort of, uh, that kind of catalyzes people into individual reflective faith, that they just can't, what kind of allowed them to stay in synthetic conventional, like it's like basically something terrible happens to them and people start telling them all these things, like this happens for a reason or whatever, and they're like, I don't know, man, that's not, it's not helping anymore, right? I've, I've reached the limit. And so then they kind of go out into the unknown and how do I construct a faith that actually does make sense according to my reason and experience. Whereas stage four, early adulthood faith, is characterized by independence, freedom. You can have this tremendous sense of kind of shifting from the conventions of stage three to the independence of stage four. You can have this sense of like unlimited potential. Like, yes, like I, you know, there, there are no limits. I'm, I'm free now. I've, I've cut the shackles. Uh, stage five is the midlife crisis stage where you find out, oh, actually, I do have limits. <laughs> oh, actually, I do have finitude. I do have mortality. And so that's what kind of shifts people out of stage four into stage five, which is called a conjunctive 
faith. Uh, M. Scott Peck, if any of you remember his book from, I don't know, maybe 40 years ago now, uh, called The Road Less Traveled, he talked about the word and as the holy conjunction, not or, and. How do you hold multiple truths in tension and, and embrace paradox? So to enter into a more mature both and faith, we have to learn to embrace paradox, diversity, irreconcilable differences. And finally, according to James Fowler's research, there is a stage six, a universalizing faith, which represents the living saints and wise elders who call us to sort of what is the full capacity of our human potential. These stage six sages are universalizing because they reach beyond their tribes to touch into and demonstrate sort of boundaryless compassion and wisdom and generosity that is at the core of human potential. So folks like the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Mahatma Gandhi, Dorothy Day, Nelson Mandela, Thich Nhat Hanh, and more. All of these figures, though, I would say, if you go read a biography of any of those folks I just named, you're going to see tremendous development at the world-class level in some areas, and they were all messed up in other areas, right? They're another good demonstration that no one is, no one's at a 10 in all of these levels. Ken Wilber's books, The Philosopher I mentioned earlier, actually go beyond Fowler's uh, stage six to trace further possibilities for spiritual growth. I'll actually be leading a Tuesday night class in the fall, probably starting in late October, to talk some about that. So if you're interested in, in diving more into this material, especially the more advanced upper end of this, we'll be doing that on Tuesday nights this fall. Uh, for now, I'm going to limit ourselves to Fowler's fa- framework for thinking about encouraging spiritual growth. As is typical for most UUs and other theologically liberal congregations, we here at UUCF, we're quite skilled, we're quite experienced at equipping individuals to really live into that stage four individuative reflective faith. If people have sort of felt a lot of peer pressure in other congregations, they come here and went, we're going to give you permission for you to do you. Right? Like, you know, so that we do that well. If someone comes here wounded from pressures to conform to a mythic literal religion, a synthetic conventional spirituality, we are well practiced in being a catalyst for individuals maturing from childhood and adolescent stages of faith into what could be called adult stages of faith, where you own your stuff, right? And you be responsible for yourself. And this is that move we've talked about so many times before, from saying, I believe something because of hierarchy, community, and tradition, right? I believe something because the people in the pointy hats tell me to do it, hierarchy, right? I believe stuff because of people wearing robes like mine, right? Here we have the freedom of the pulpit and the freedom of the pew, right? I have the freedom to say what I think is important to say. You have the freedom to believe whatever you want. So moving from hierarchy, you know, community, we believe, uh, and, and history, it's allegedly always been that way, to saying, no, I don't believe it for those reasons. I believe it because it makes sense and or I've experienced it for myself. You know, and this is why you see people just talking past each other about like, you know, women's equality and, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender rights. It's because some people are arguing based on hierarchy and community and tradition and other people are arguing based on reason and experience, right? They're just using totally different criterions of authority. It's the shift from what William James called secondhand religion to firsthand religion, right? Secondhand is what other people tell you. Firsthand is what you know to be true. It's that sort of You know, religion is for people who are scared of hell, and spirituality is for people who have been through hell, right? (laughs) So, and and it's that, that tricky move, though, from being, there's a thin line between being set free and being cast adrift, right? And that's also what we can help with, is like, let's figure this out together, 
right? So that we're not just all cast adrift. And it's also the difference between freedom from, where you're just escaping your past, and freedom for. What are you going to do with your freedom? That's what we're here together for. We're here to say, this is what you can use your freedom for, to freely choose to encourage spiritual growth, to be part of a beloved community of your own free choice, to act for peace and justice. Our individual diversity as this big tent, as this big umbrella that Nicole was talking about that includes atheists, Buddhists, Christians, Jews, Hindus, pagans, and more, that would have been incon- that was inconceivable to me as a childhood, you know, growing up as a child as a Southern Baptist in Florence, South Carolina, that there could be a religious community with atheists and Buddhists and Christians and Jews and Hindus and pagans and more, right? That, but, that, but that very big tent makes us, again, a natural conduit for helping individuals transition into stage five conjunctive faith. Structurally, having not one source, but many, having six sources, makes our default position much more both and rather than either or. We're sort of institutionally and structurally set up to help catalyze people into stage five faith. Simply regularly being here amidst the religious pluralism of this congregation functions to encourage a both-and perspective. But at our best here at UUCF, we are not merely a collection of individuals. We are greater than the sum of our parts. Sometimes we even just stumble backward into it unintentionally, but we stumble into these moments where we truly are greater than the sum of our parts. And that is stage six, universalizing faith. I really am grateful to be with you all on this journey. In more theologically conservative faith traditions, there can often be this significant conflict when someone raised in a stage three synthetic conventional faith leaves home or goes to college, etc. Many people have tragically had the experience in adolescence and early adulthood of feeling like I either have to choose religion or these new perspectives that I'm learning in college, that it's an either or. They get the sense it isn't possible to have both. But as Unitarian Universalists, we are part of a broader theologically liberal tradition which is deeply committed to both spirituality and science, to both reason and religion, and the ways they can mutually inform one another and keep each other more honest and accountable. There is power in a conveyor belt that encourages us to learn, grow, question, and seek for our whole lives. And I'm proud to be committed to a congregation and a religious movement that encourages lifespan religious education and lifelong spiritual exploration. Again, I should hasten to add that as with all levels of human development, spiritual growth is rarely a linear progression. It's more like a spiral in which you experience uh, aspects of previous stages even as you begin to glimpse aspects of stages to come. And the same, same dynamic is true of us or any group collectively. That, and, and I think the invitation then is for us to notice when are the times and seasons when we individually or collectively are spiraling back down into stage four isolated individualism? And when are the times that we're spiraling up into universalizing faith? It's just an invitation for us to notice that into beloved community, right? We are skilled as Unitarian Universalists at reassuring individuals that our intentions are always to operate by persuasion at most, not coercion, and that we defend each individual's right to follow their conscience. That remains and will always remain profoundly true and important. But it's not insignificant that the two latecomers to our living tradition our seventh principle of interdependence and our eighth principle of diversity and accountability, those are the things that can most help us spiral up 
into beloved community. So if you're looking for those two things, it's that experience of experience myself really is interdependent. You're really seeing my neighbor as myself, like really experiencing that profoundly. That's our seventh principle. It can help us spiral up into beloved community. And so too, that eighth principle of accountably dismantling white supremacy culture. That as you use, we are not conscious, aspirational white supremacists, like what just went down in Buffalo. Like that, that's not us. But what we've learned is that when we don't consciously dismantle systems of oppression, we've come to see we unconsciously perpetuate them. And so that's, the cha- that's what's going to get us to more beloved community, is consciously dismantling, otherwise we will uh, unconsciously perpetuate. There's so much to be said about that. I think the final thing I'll say that we've been exploring in the Tuesday night meditation classes I've been leading is that whether your path is Christianity or Buddhism or Hinduism or uh, Islam or whatever, you know, Christianity, Judaism, whatever your path is, dosage matters. If you want to encourage spiritual growth, the, the dose of that that you're giving, you know, what, how much are you meditating? How much are you praying? How much are you doing yoga? How much are you... Dosage matters is the final thing I'll say about encouraging spiritual growth. And so again, I don't know where this journey is going to lead of encouraging spiritual growth because I really do, I'm increasingly convinced it's never ending. There's just, there's always more and more evolving potential. But I am grateful to be in this big tent under this big umbrella with all of you. So as we prepare to stand and rise and body your spirit, we're going to sing this hymn, Circle Round for Freedom. And as we do, really pay attention to these lyrics. We're going to sing it through twice and notice the ways that this might be encouraging our spiritual growth. Please rise and body your spirit. Let's sing Circle Round for Freedom. <laughs>